Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a man who's been lucky enough to spend his entire adult life in an industry which he was also his greatest passion. His love for boxing started in March of 1960 when his father turned the television channel to a fight between Danny Moyer and Emil Griffith. He has spent over 40 years in the world of professional boxing as a boxer, a broadcaster, a ring announcer, New York State's athletic commissioner, editor of The Ring magazine, and host of Sirius XM Radio's At The Fights. His newest memoir, A Glove Affair, My Lifelong Journey in the World, of professional boxing was published in April. It is a pleasure to welcome the man they call Commissioner, Commissioner Gordon, the one and only Randy Gordon to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Commish. Thank you so much for that great opening there and intro. I mean, with all it seems that I've done, I think it shows one thing that I can't keep a job. <laughs> so, you know, we mentioned in the open how you were hooked at 11 years old. But the story goes a little deeper. Between 1960 and 1962, you only missed one televised bout. And, and that's saying something because back then the fights were shown every week. The only reason you missed it was because it was the same day as your bar mitzvah. So, <laughs> so the first question is... Mazel tov. Right, well, right, right. The first question is... Not only did you see every one of the fights, but did you also see every one of those Make That Spare, the bowling show that was always paired with the ABC Fights of the Week? Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I saw every one. Geez, every one of them. And what's so amazing, while I was watching all of that, little did I ever realize that the guy at that time, 1960, 61, on the Friday Night Fights, who was doing the announcing was Don Dunphy, who would go on to become one of my best friends, my, my guru, my teacher. Um, when I started on ESPN in 1980, he was the first guy to call me up and, and critique me. I mean, he was just amazing. So, I mean, I'm telling you, I just started out as just a fight fan who just wanted to sit ringside, one fight maybe, and I... I got every great job there ever was in the sport of boxing. It's such an amazing story, and it's all laid out in your book. So of all those fights that you watched from 1960 to 1962, was there one of those weekly fights that stood out to you and why? Well, I, I keep coming back to that, that first fight because it was just so special to me. You see... While I was watching that on my 11th birthday, I was in a wheelchair. And I had been burned, severely burned on my right leg about eight months earlier. And it was now March 11th, 1960. It was winter. And my friends were out in the street, and they were playing football in the street. And there was some snow on the ground and everything. But... I couldn't go out there because I was in this wheelchair. And my dad said, Why don't, he was flipping the station just to see if there was something on. And he said, feel like watching this fight? Now, I didn't know anything about fighting, about boxing, whatever they call that. And as I watched it, I watched these two guys dance around in the ring. And I, was, I remember thinking to myself, 
man, I wish I could get out of this wheelchair and just do that. And I made up my mind I would get out of the wheelchair and I would do that. And it's what basically drove me to push myself right out of that wheelchair. So Emil Griffith and Denny Moyer, the first fight that I watched, they later went on to become two good friends of mine. Don Dunphy, as I said, was the announcer. He became my guru, my teacher. And the building that it was coming from, Madison Square Garden, I announced as many fights there as anybody in history. So that probably is the one right there, fight number one. Amazing. And, you know, you take a look at your career and, and what you just said. So you were 11 years old. You flash forward to 1969, and you actually had that amateur bout. You did make it into the ring in Sunnyside Garden, in the Sunnyside Garden in Sunnyside, Queens, which was one of those special venues back then. We had Jerry Cooney on here. He talked about it as well. Take us through that first amateur bite against, uh, fight against Bobby Landowski and what you remember about the entire event, you know, from getting ready in the locker room to actually finally fulfilling that promise to yourself that you were going to get out of that wheelchair and fight? Well, I had a couple of amateur fights maybe right before that, but this was the first in the Golden Gloves, and it just meant a lot to me. And I trained. I did everything that a fighter that I thought a fighter would do. You go out and you run. There was no designer sneakers then. So I I went out to a a surplus store, and I bought a pair of Army boots. Why? Because I saw pictures of Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali running in Army boots. So I ran in Army boots as well. And actually what it did was really strengthen my legs. didn't make a great fighter out of me. But if anything, I think being in the ring taught me one thing that other ways to make a living would be headed towards me and not in the ring. I mean, um, maybe I could talk into a microphone, maybe I could write it and um, do something, but it's not going to be as a fighter. But I was still in love with it, and I knew that it was going to be my career. It was what I was going to do. You know, a few months after that fight, uh, one of the legendary heavyweight boxers, uh, Rocky Marciano, was killed in a plane crash. The story goes that, for some reason, right after he passed away, you headed straight for the Ring Magazine offices in New York in hopes of meeting editor and historian Nate Fleischer. Why did you want to go there, and what happened when you arrived? Uh, well, and, and all this... I see that you've you've either read my book or skimmed through the book because, yeah, these are stories in my book that just you're really not going to find anywhere. The the owner of the Ring magazine, he started Ring magazine in the early 1920s. He had Nat Fleischer. He was known as Mr. Boxing. Whatever he said was basically gospel. His word was boxing law. He was the one who stripped Ali of the title when he refused to step forward for military induction in 1967. But when Rocky Marciano was killed, like a day before his birthday, I was so upset that The Rock, who I had never seen fight before, but my father had told me so much about Rocky Marciano and having become such a fight fan in in nine years, I knew all about Marciano, that I decided, you know what, I'm going to do something crazy. I'm getting on a Long Island Railroad. I'm going to ride into the city. I am going to meet with Nat Fleischer. I mean, this was crazy. I stood no chance 
me, a college kid, no, I mean, absolutely no other background other than just being in college and being a fight fan. I took myself into the city, and some way, somehow, it's like the boxing god said, you know what, this kid is destined to have a career in the sport of boxing. And he had me meet up with Nat Fleischer while a TV crew from ABC came in and taped Nat Fleischer. And he had me sit there with him. And little did I realize in that very office where he was 10 years later, I would be sitting in that very seat at that very desk as the editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine. I mean, I tell everybody, you want to dream? Please, go ahead and dream. Make your dreams realistic. But you could dream because dreams come true. Absolutely. And, and you know, when I, I read about you, and, and I, I've always known about you, but the more I read about you, I almost like picture you like in the Woody Allen movie Zelig, wherever something was happening, you were there, and then <laughs> and, and Forrest Gump. It's like, it's, like it's Forrest, unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> so, so as you mentioned, within a decade of that meeting, you become the editor-in-chief of that magazine, the Bible of boxing, uh, working in tandem with the late, great Burt Sugar. Uh, for those too young to know about Ring Magazine and our audience, could you tell them the special place it holds in boxing history? Well, because... When Nat Fleischer started Ring Magazine back in the 20s, of course, there was, look, we're in a different world today. We, we've got something called the Internet. Even the Internet has gotten so big that even magazines are, are not, and, and, and newspapers just are not doing that well. But back in the 20s, newspapers were the thing. They, they were, their word when. I mean, people got their news from the newspapers. And when Nat Fleischer started The Ring, it's, and it's actually got two names, The Ring and Ring Magazine, it was then called, it was the Bible of Boxing. Because, again, when Nat Fleischer spoke, his word was gospel, it was law. And he started the ratings, and he was rating every fighter out there uh, from heavyweights and light heavyweights and middleweights right down to flyweights for 112 pounders. So when he started that, everybody who was into boxing went out and bought Ring Magazine for about 15, 20 cents. And he remained as its editor until the early 1970s when his son-in-law, uh, Nat Bay took over. And Burt Sugar always wanted, a, he wanted Ring Magazine. Burt Sugar was um, a Damon Runyon kind of character. Nailed it. <laughs> always wore these flashy fedoras and smoked his cigars and was loud and sometimes very obnoxious, but just an incredible writer. And it's funny because Bert, many times, we would be pulling all-nighters. But the thing is, as we were putting the next magazine together, Bert was in the bar in O'Reilly's down the block from Ring Magazine on 31st Street, and he'd be half-potted, and he would come back to the office, fall asleep on the desk, and we had to have all the type-in, like, early in the morning. And I'm looking, and he's got half of his editorial finished. So I'm reading the thing. I said, okay, 
He's talking about uh, the World Boxing Council, one of the sanctioning bodies. Okay. I would then take it from where he left off, finish it, turned it in, and he would wake up the next morning and we'd get all the galley type back and he'd say, Randy, did you see my editorial? You like it? And he didn't even remember that he didn't write the whole thing. He, he didn't say, where'd the rest of this come from? Because he wrote half of it and I wrote the other half. And then when he left the magazine in, in 84, I became the full editor-in-chief and publisher and I kept that for one year before I went into television full-time. You captured the essence of Burt Sugar perfectly. We had him on the show a number of times before he passed away, and he was one of our favorite guests. Um, interestingly enough, of all the people that you've come in contact in your many years in the boxing trade, i got to ask you, how did Tracy Morgan get the honor of doing the forward as opposed <laughs> to every other great boxer that you've come in contact with? <laughs> um, good question. And you know what? People do ask me that. They said, why didn't you have like a Sugar Ray Leonard write your forward or a George Foreman or somebody like that? Where, where did Tracy Morgan come in? Well, it turned out a few years ago, Jerry Cooney, my longtime sidekick, on Sirius XM Radio, ran into Tracy Morgan. Jerry goes to a lot of the Nick games at Madison Square Garden. And they always put him behind the Nick bench. And who is he sitting with? I think on one side of him was Spike Lee, and on the other side of him was Tracy Morgan. And Jerry just started. He was talking to both of them. And then he invited Tracy up to the studio. Tracy told him, I really love boxing. Oh, man, I, I listen to you and Randy all the time. So Jerry invited him to come up. And when he came up, Tracy Morgan, who was raised in the Bronx, was a huge fight fan. When we first met each other, and I, I was walking over to him about to shake his hand, and he goes, Randy, I feel like I know you for years, gives me the biggest hug. And it's like we knew each other for decades, and we just became great friends. And it was on about his third appearance on the show. I said, Tracy, I'm just about done with the book I'm writing. Let me ask you something. Would you write the forward to my book? And Tracy just looked at me, and I thought he was about to say, are you crazy? You know, whatever. And he just looked at me and said, I would be honored to write your forward. When do you need it by? And I said, well, you got about two months. And he said, I'll tell you what. And I got it about three days later. Unbelievable. That's a great story. So you mentioned how big of a fight fan that Tracy Morgan is. And for longtime listeners of the show, you know, I'm almost 60 years old, and people that have listened to the show know how much I loved the, the boxing, especially, you know, we, we spoke with Jerry Cooney about it. Um, Ali, Frazier, Foreman, Quarry, Holmes, Tyson, Hagler, Sugar Ray, Hitman Hearns, Duran, Hollyfield, and, and Jerry Cooney, you know, when I was, you know, I felt I lived through the golden age of boxing. Locally, there's a fighter here that's been in our studio a number of times. I, you know, I hope that he gets back soon because of his injuries. But I love the the Hebrew hammer, Cletus Seldon. Um, I knew you were going to go there when you said the injuries. <laughs> I, you know, in all my years in boxing, I don't remember anybody getting this injured. Hand injuries, surgery, shoulder injuries, surgery, elbow, 
surgery. I mean, this guy has been cut open more times and keeps coming back from the basically, you know, from the boxing dead, if you will, and winning his next fight. I actually announced his last fight against Zab Judah, and I thought that he looked like Superman in the fight, only to find out he got hurt again. Yeah, yeah. It, and, but but see, like for me, Cletus has this personality that that harkens back to, to that era. Even there was a guy Chris who, Algieri we've had on Chris Algieri, but back in the day, guys were personalities. Even uh, Prince Hasim, you know, it was it was musty TV, and for me. I think the game, and maybe because uh, there's an oversaturation of everything, to me, the game has lost a little bit of its luster. So for a guy who f- still continues to follow it and love it, tell me what I'm missing that, that the game is still the same, but it's me. Wh- what should draw me back to want to, to follow the fight game the way I used to? Well, one of the things that's going to draw you back is you're going to stay in touch with me. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and so now I'm long. telling you, I think a lot of it has to do, and it's funny that you're asking me this question because the other day, I went for a yearly medical checkup, and my doctor turned to me, and he said, "Randy, who's the heavyweight champ of the world?" And I wasn't sure if this was part of the medical exam. <laughs> He's giving me some kind of mental test. So when I said, "Well, there are a few," but let me just say that in my mind, it's Deontay Wilder. And he, he kind of shook his head. He's not the biggest sports fan in the world, but he said, Deontay Wilder, where's he from? I said, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And he asked, why don't I know him? And I said, and he said, because I, I know of Ali and Frazier and Tyson and Foreman, why don't I know this Wilder guy? And I said, because in the 60s and 70s, we watched fights on NBC, CBS, ABC. We had Howard Cosell yelling in our faces. And everybody got to see these guys. And it was not on pay-per-view. But now everything is on streaming services that you got to pay for. And if it's not on the streaming service, it's on pay-per-view. you got to spend $79, $89, $99 to watch a fight. So... Unless you're a diehard boxing nut job like me, people just aren't going to spend that kind of money and then read about it the next day on, on the Internet because it's not on network television. And, of course, HBO has gone away now from boxing. So we need to bring it back to the networks. We need to really put it out there before the masses. And a lot of, hey, our own Newsday one of the best writers out there, Bobby Cassidy, is a boxing writer, but they don't assign him that many fights to cover. Yeah. Boxing needs more coverage. And that's why I'm glad that Jerry Cooney and I um, see, I mean, we're on Sirius, but you don't get Sirius XM unless you subscribe to it. And if you subscribe, then you can hear it. But if you, you don't subscribe, what do you have? You have your AM stations and FM stations, which are great, but it's the specialty shows that wind up on on the pay-per-view access stuff, like uh, SiriusXM, like The Zone, like ESPN Plus. So 
But boxing is out there before the masses, and it's a huge boxing base that we have. I just want more people to be exposed to it. Because there's so many terrific fighters, like this Lomachenko. You, you, you know who Lomachenko is, of course. He, he's like... He's like the Matrix. I haven't seen a fighter this talented maybe in all my years in covering the sport. You know, it's interesting you say that because I guess when I was growing up, we had ABC Wide World of Sports. Now, like, if you would tell me that today I would ever watch 20 minutes of Acapulco, you know, cliff divers, I would tell you you're crazy. But when I was growing up, when that was on ABC, I watched it. But that's also how I learned about the Jerry Quarries, because they did those 20-minute pieces, and then you would have the fight, and, and the build-up to the fight would be like two weeks prior, where Cosell would be telling you about Jerry Cooney, and then two weeks it would be on ABC's Wired World of Sports. You know, I, I remember being in college, and I, I think it was right before, like, uh, Thanksgiving holiday, or maybe the Friday before Thanksgiving, maybe one of the greatest fights I ever saw, maybe the greatest round of boxing I ever saw, with people that really weren't boxing fans, but when they saw Sugar Ray and Wilfredo Benitez standing toe-to-toe, they became boxing fans. Now, I have two guys here in the studio that are, are far younger than I am. Far younger. So, And I, I'd venture to say that you guys would tune in MMA before you would tune in boxing. Am I correct? Uh, I, w- I would actually probably go boxing, just because I've never gotten into the, the real violence of MMA and how far they're willing to go. And, and Mike, what about you? Uh, I'm an MMA guy. I just like okay. seeing the different styles of, uh, like, like judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, whatever they have to bring to the table. So, so Randy, how much has MMA cut into the boxing market? Well, it did back about 10, 15 years ago. It, it took a huge... Well, it, not for the 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 diehard boxing fans because the diehard boxing yeah, fans I never watch MMA, right? They don't really watch MMA, and the the young MMA fans don't watch boxing. But there was a a survey done one time, and it was unbelievable that the numbers are basically the same. You would think that the young watch MMA, and the older sports fans maybe watch boxing. It's not, um, it's almost down the middle. It's just that it has a new base MMA. And I've got a funny story for you because, you know, I'm the one who banned MMA in New York. Right, as a commissioner, right. When I first saw it in in the early 90s, I was commissioner in New York, and my buddy, my longtime buddy from NBC Radio, sportscaster Bruce Beck, got the call to do the blow-by-blow, and he called me up. He said, hey, Kamish, I want you to watch something I'm doing tomorrow night. It's called No Holds Barred Fighting, and they're going to be bringing it to New York, and it's going to be up to you to pass it. So I watched it, and I was absolutely appalled. It was my first look at No Holds Barred Fighting, which evolved into the MMA that we know. So I turned it down. And when I turned it down, I called up Larry Hazard, who's the commissioner still in Jersey. He turned it down. And I called my buddy Mark Ratner, who was the commissioner in Nevada, and he turned it down. Well, today Mark Ratner has moved on. He is now the vice president of regulatory affairs over at the UFC, and he loves it. Larry Hazard in about seven years after I banned it, told the UFC, if you don't bring in a new set of rules, 
this is not going to go anywhere. And he helped them form a new set of rules. They brought it in. There's no what they call 12 to 6 elbows. There's no soccer-style kicks to a down fighter's head. I fell in love with it then. I am totally in love with MMA, just like I love boxing. And, and here's a funny one for you. All the years that I, after I banned it, every other state approved it except New York. <laughs> for a long time. And then it was four, about three and a half years ago, New York finally approved it. And Dana White, the president of the UFC, invited me to sit with him at Madison Square Garden for the very first MMA event in New York. But just like 1962, the only fight that I ever missed on television was the night before my bar mitzvah. The one at Madison Square Garden, my oldest granddaughter, was getting bat mitzvah wow. that night. Wow. And there was no fighting the family. My granddaughter would have beaten me up. <laughs> and I was proud to be with her <laughs> as she was bat mitzvah. And uh, Dana White keeps saying, next time we come to New York, you're going to be with me at ringside. And that one, I don't know when it's going to be. I will be with him at cage side. Just think, you know, if Cal Ripken Jr. was Jewish, there'd be no streak, and Lou Gehrig would still have the record. <laughs> Absolutely right. The Iron Man. So, all right, so as a fan of the sport, if you could travel back in a time machine to see one fight in the entire history of boxing, what fight would it be? Um, great. Another great question. Um, I would head on back to the night that Jack Johnson lost his title uh, in Havana, Cuba, to Jess Willard. Because I'd want to take that time machine back. And I really, I always wanted to meet Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was the first black heavyweight champion. They called him, he was the first world-colored heavyweight champion. And and America wasn't ready for the black athlete. Look how long it still took after him. Joe Lewis then became the next um, African-American heavyweight champion. And look how long it took baseball to open its doors after that. So you can imagine that during World War One, even though our guys were getting sent into war, they were just not accepted as athletes in any way. And they, and they pressured Jack Johnson into basically giving up the title, and he lost it in Havana, Cuba. And that's where I would go, because I'd, I'd want to be there for that, and I'd almost hope to talk him out of it in the dressing room. If you are going to take a dive, Jack, just to, to get white America happy with you so you can go back to the United States and not be arrested, screw it. Fight, knock this guy out, and um, live in Cuba for the rest of your life. They'll take care of you. I mean, I'd want to see that fight. That's the one I want to see. Wow, that's great stuff. Now, I, I assume from what you've already told us, I know the answer to this question already. If you could pick one play-by-play -play announcer to do that fight, that that Johnson fight, who would it be? Ah, uh, there's. I mean, Don Dunphy yeah. just had a way. He had a had the voice. He certainly didn't have the best voice of all time, but I could just hear him from ringside and. Hi again, everybody. This is Don Duntry coming to you from Havana, Cuba, where today it's going to be Jack Johnson. I mean, I, I could just picture what that would be like.
unbelievable. All right, so lastly, you're inducted into the New York State Boxing Hall of Fame class of 2016, a group that included Aaron Davis, Hector Macho Camacho, Rocky Graziano, Dennis Rappaport, Howard Cosell, and Jimmy Jacobs. Looking back at your career and everything that has transpired, sitting there as an 11-year-old in a wheelchair watching that fight that your dad tuned in for you, could you ever envision what would take place over the next 60-some-odd years? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I couldn't. Even through high school, when, and it, it, it's funny because a lot of my high school teachers are still around. They're in their 80s, and the principal remembers me um, getting brought down to the office once a week because instead of sitting there in class and reading my Edgar Allan Poe, I, w- I was reading uh, some other boxing writer in Ring Magazine under my English book. And then one day the principal said to me, Randy, look. Maybe one day you will become some great boxing writer. But you're going to have to have a degree in order to do that. Please, try to do a little bit of your work and then save some time for boxing. And I promised him I would, and I, and I did. I mean, I still was reading my Ring magazines in class. But when I became the editor of Ring magazine, and it was in Newsday, and it said – uh, locals making good or something like that, locals on the rise. He saw it, and he was one of the first calls I got when I got to Ring Magazine and when I got to ESPN. And um, I just never, ever, even when I got to Ring Magazine, I just never could foresee that a number of years, about nine years later, I was going to become the commissioner in New York and have the, the run that I did and even today, people are saying, in the history of the New York State Athletic Commission, you were everybody's favorite commissioner. And then to, to even to have retired in 1995, I never wanted to retire. Why should you retire when you're doing something that you love and you're getting paid for? To go into the city, into Sirius XM Radio, and sit with Jerry Cooney and uh, we just got assigned to go to the Deontay Wilder fight in Vegas. Why am I retiring? I'm not. <laughs> Retirement will never happen for me. I'm working with a couple of amateur fighters now down at the Westbury Boxing Club. We're going to turn them pro in the next year. I'm having, at 70 years old, I feel my, my grandkids, my 12 of them, they think I'm their 70-year-old playmate. Got to love it, and, you know, people should go out and get this book, A Glove Affair, My Lifelong Journey in the World of Professional Boxing. Uh, You know, Ryan and Mike, we didn't realize you're working here in Westbury. Uh, We've gone to the Paramount to see some of Joe DeGuardia's um, fights over there. That's how we fell in love with Cletus. We might make a trip. Let us know when you're going to be in Westbury. We'd love to watch it. I I mean, I want to fall in love with the sport again for sure. Well, you know, um, I would love to – I want to – Meet you guys. I want to see you guys face to face. Let's break some bread, have some coffee or whatever. Please, I'm very serious about this. Let's stay in touch. And uh, I want to thank you guys so much for having me aboard tonight. I- I've had a blast. Absolutely our pleasure. And we know that the only fight you're going to miss is when your great grandchildren get bar bomb mitzvah. So we got a little time, right? <laughs> There we go. I mean, you know, something like that takes me out of the fights, but, you know, I get to so many others. And, again, February 22nd, I'll be heading out to 
what I call lost wages Nevada with <laughs> gentleman Jerry Cooney to watch the heavyweight champ of the world, Deontay Wilder, uh, once again in a rematch fight Tyson Fury. It should be a heck of a night for boxing. Awesome. Thank you so much, Commissioner. We really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. I really am honored to be on your show. Thanks so much. Commissioner Randy Gordon.